It is in the Pew Bibles on page 925. As the members of the congregation will be aware, we are preaching through Obadiah. I know we have some visitors this evening. And we're going through Obadiah, or at least when I'm preaching here, we're going through Obadiah, I should put it that way. And we have considered in God's grace, verses 1 to 4, and this evening, God willing, we shall look at what verses 5 to 7 have to say to us. But it's a small book, one that we don't often read. In fact, I think consulting the little books and commentaries I have that can also double up as daily Bible reading notes I think the most that is spent on Obadiah is three days you're talking about three days in the midst of a five year course it's not a lot and so we have tend to think I think that this little book is not terribly important we tend maybe to pass through it and uh, uh, when we're going through the Bible so it will uh, I think do us no harm to read this book in its entirety once more Obadiah uh, from verse 1 let us attend unto the word of God the vision of Obadiah this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom we have heard a message from the Lord an envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go up against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks, make your home on the heights, who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If great pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? How Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border, your friends will deceive and overpower you, those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, you will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. 
You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Amen. Let us unite our hearts in prayer. Let us pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We come in his name because he is the only mediator between God and man. He is the one whom you have appointed to be the Messiah. The one whom you have chosen to be the head and the redeemer of your people. Therefore, O God, we rejoice in him this evening. We delight to hear of Christ. We delight to speak of him. The one who has redeemed us, the one who has shown us such everlasting love. And so, Father, we pray tonight that Christ's kingdom may be extended. We pray for those places where the gospel is preached this evening, that it may go forth with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, that the hearts of men and women may be opened that they may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to the saving of their souls. And we remember especially, O Lord, the special service held in Wan this evening. We pray you will be with the Reverend Mr. Coulter as he preaches. Give him great liberty. Open his mouth, O God, and govern his tongue to speak your truth, that your word may go forth. Find a resting place in the hearts of the members of that congregation. That if there are any who do not know you, 
their hearts may be opened like Lydia's was of old, that they may give heed to the preaching of the word, that they may believe in Christ, that this may be for them a day when they will look back as a day in which they were born again and brought into the family of God's people. We pray for our missionaries who have gone to Nantes, for those who labour in Galway. We pray for those in Enniskillen and in Londonderry. And we remember also the work that is planned for Waterford and for Cookstown. We ask, O Lord, your blessing upon these uh, outreach. We ask, O Lord, that by your Spirit you would gather in your elect, you would build up your church in the truth, And through them, O God, may the light of the gospel shine forth in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. So, Father, be with us. Gather our hearts and our voices and our thoughts as one, that we may bring glory to Christ, for it is in his name we pray. Amen. Our reading from the New Testament will be found this evening in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We're reading verses 1 to 12, and you'll find that on page 968 of the Pew Bibles. 968. It's a particularly well-known passage. It's the Beatitudes. I'm sure you are like me, that you had to learn this. And uh, when you were at school, I was talking uh, with uh, some of the folks this morning and was saying that I used to look forward to uh, the Sunday school, the uh, uh, RE examination day when I was at primary school. Because in our primary school, you got off after the minister had arrived in the room. And since he usually arrived and didn't actually uh, really make anybody feel under any pressure it was really more of a day that you looked forward to than than you dreaded but I remember one of the passages that we had to learn was the Beatitudes and so we're going to read these Beatitudes this evening Uh, in more uh, literal translations than NIV It speaks of Jesus, he sat down and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And it's a pity the NIV have actually left out that phrase, he opened his mouth. Now it seems rather superfluous to us, but it was actually a way of stressing the importance of what was going to be said. It's a way uh, Matthew had of alerting uh, the people to whom he was writing, who were mainly Jewish uh, believers, that what he was going to say was of particular importance. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, that is attend unto the word of God. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Obadiah is a small book, but it is a book with a very large message. And it's a message that we neglect at our peril. It's one that's very relevant to today and to the nations and peoples of the modern age. And I think that would surprise most people if we were to go out this evening and stop people on the promenade and say to them, what is the importance of the book of Obadiah for today? They would probably wonder, one, what you were talking about, or two, they wouldn't see any relevance in it at all. Because after all, it's a book written about 2,500 years ago, about a nation and a people, Edom, who no longer exist. The land of Edom now is the kingdom of Jordan. And instead of being inhabited by Edomites, it's inhabited by Arabs. So it may seem to many people that this book is no longer relevant. It may be an interesting uh, throwback to ancient times, but uh, it surely it cannot have something to say to us today. But the reality is that this book is very relevant. Its message is up to date, and it's a message which we in the church neglect at our peril, and it's a message that the world neglects at its peril too. It's relevant because Edom represents the people who hate God and who hate the people of God. The Edomite stands for those who are the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. The principles that are revealed to us by the prophetic vision of Obadiah are still active in our world and the principles which it shows us by which God works, God continues to work. You see, the enemies of God and the people of God are still with us. Edom is the example by which we learn the rules of how God works in the everyday affairs of men and nations. God is still at work. 
He is the same yesterday, today and forever, the eternal God. And the way he worked in the past is the way he works today. You see, the people of the world are still the enemies of God and because they are God's enemies, they are the enemies of his people. As the Apostle Paul told the Romans, he said, no one seeks God. And again, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the men and women of the world, the men and women we have our daily uh, uh, contact with, whether it be as we meet them in the shop or on the train or the bus, as we meet them in work, as we meet them in school, as we meet them as we go about our daily basis. They are men and women who have no fear of God before their eyes. They have no love of God in their hearts and they are not seeking him. And what is true of men and women as individuals is true of nations. We see this around us so clearly. We see it in the rejection of Christian morality and in the rejection of the moral standards that are laid out for us in the Bible. We have seen it recently enshrined in the laws of our land which grant Divorce on easy terms. Same-sex marriage and abortion are considered rights in our land and in our day and in our age. Even though we in Northern Ireland may not have all these things, there are moves afoot to bring them here. To force our Parliament in Belfast whether or not the members of the assembly approve of such things, to introduce these things. There are moves to take uh, uh, the assembly to court, to force it to pass laws that are contrary to the teaching of the Bible. This hatred of God and God's ways is found in the drive to banish religion from the public place. Christians are being brought before the courts because they seek to run their businesses on, in accordance with Christian principles. There have been Christians before the courts in our land because they would not allow homosexuals to stay overnight in the same room. Indeed, one couple have been forced to sell their B&B business because of the costs. Uh, and the trial that they've had to go through. In America, I think it's in Arizona, uh, a Christian baker who refused to uh, bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple has found themselves hauled before the courts and ordered by the courts to bake the cake. We see it in the demand of employers The Christians do not apply their beliefs in their work. The practice of Christianity in our land is becoming something akin to smoking. It's something you do in private at home and it's fast getting to be something that you're not allowed to do in front of the children. 
but it's so different when it comes to other religions, especially Islam. They're allowed to have their religious practices accommodated. They're allowed to be able to refuse, for instance, if they work for a supermarket to handle alcohol or anything else which may be considered contrary to their religion. They can say, I'm not serving that. I'm not serving any customers who are buying this. Uh, rooms are being set aside that Muslims may have a prayer room in, in, in universities and in factories. Other religions are allowed to wear symbols of their faith, but if a Christian comes and tries to wear a cross or some other thing which represents the Christian faith, they find themselves in trouble with their employer and threatened with dismissal. Have you ever wondered why that is? Why other religions are given a, a, a pass when Christianity uh, is uh, uh, persecuted in this way? It's because the men and women of our world hate God. And because they hate God, they hate his people. And therefore, they come down as much as they can upon Christians and the practice of the Christian religion. The other religions do not challenge them. They do not present them with the true and living God. And therefore, they do not mind them. Uh, they encourage them. Uh, they pander to them because they do not present to them the living God. We see this hatred of God in the media, in the attacks upon the Bible, where uh, they're quick uh, to show or to broadcast anything they think which discredits the old book and discredits the message of Christ. We see it in the now nearly complete attack upon the Sabbath day and the keeping of this day holy. I say nearly complete because there are still some restrictions in the law on trading and shopping. But these are even now under attack and people are seeking uh, to have them uh, dismissed that Sunday will be like any other day of the week. They are nearly there. And do we really suspect that they will not succeed? We see it in the way the secret name of God is taken in vain on the television and the radio, even on advertisements and in the newspapers. The only time many people hear the name of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ is when someone blasphemes. I remember reading a man uh, giving an account of, uh, he was at church, and this little boy came into the services. They were rather surprised to see him. I think he might have been nine or ten year old. And he came, and of course they were intrigued that this little boy would come to the services of his own accord. And at the end of it, the man went up and spoke to him and asked him, did he enjoy the service? He said, yes, he enjoyed it very much. 
And the man said to him, will you be coming back? He says, no, I won't. And he said, why? If you enjoyed it, he says, well, he says, I was very much surprised at the bad language that you use in your songs. And the little boy didn't give any impression of being an exclusive psalmist. So he, he pressed the little boy on this. And the little boy says, well, you use swear words like God and Jesus Christ in your songs. The boy had never heard the words before spoken with reverence. He'd never before heard them spoken in worship. He had never heard them spoken by anyone but a swear words and blasphemy. And the man had to explain to the young lad that they were the names of God and of the Lord Jesus and they were singing his praise. But you know, I think that young lad is no longer unique or rare. I think that's the only time people hear the name of Christ in our society today is when it is taken in vain. We see this hatred of God in other ways. And we see the hatred of his people in the way that Christians are depicted in our dramas. Either Christians are depicted as dangerous hypocrites or as weak, ineffectual people, or else as rather odd, strange individuals. The sort of person your mother warned you about when you were a child. The signs around us are clear to be seen, that the people and the governments of our day, and our own government in particular, despise God and hate him. We see it in belief, in the belief that science is the only way to truth. And those who believe in God are fools that reject evidence. We see it in the lauding of people like Professor Richard Dawkins. Though it must be said even the atheists seem to be tiring of him and his antics. But these men are presented to us as the elite the intellectual thinkers, the men and women who are at the forefront of human knowledge. Those leading us out of the dark age of religion and faith. The anti-God, anti-people of God attitude of the people of Edom is still alive and active. In our world. But do you know this? So is God. He is still the sovereign Lord of all. The forces opposed to God are active in the world, but so is God. And very often I feel we have forgotten that. Even as Christians, we have forgotten that God is active in the world. That the principles outlaid by Obadiah still stand today. And as Edom was judged, so this world 
will be judged. And this evening I want us to look at verses 5 to 7 of this book and to notice three things. The first two points will be quite brief and the last one will be the main thrust of the sermon. First, Edom devastated. Second, Edom betrayed. And thirdly, Edom the lessons. First then, Edom devastated. Edom devastated. We see this in verses 5 and 6. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. Obadiah uses a couple of pictures here that's familiar to us all. The thief who robs your house does not tend to rob everything. Usually he can't carry everything. He'll come in, he'll take what he thinks he can get away with, that he can carry and that he can sell on very quickly. So even if we come back and find that our house has been robbed, uh, there is usually plenty of our goods left behind. A thief usually leaves something behind. And another illustration uh, that Obadiah used, and one that the people of Edom uh, would have been uh, particularly aware of, because Edom was famous for its vineyards and its wine. Apparently, apparently the land of Edom was suitable, particularly suitable, for the growing of vineyards. And one of the ancient uh, Roman naturalists, uh, he wrote of the the special wines that come from uh, what uh, was the land of Edom. But one thing the Edomites would have known is that when it comes to harvest, you have to act quickly because if you delay, the grapes will spoil in the vine and the harvest will be lost. And so the harvest had to be gathered very quickly. But what this meant was, you had not time to do it thoroughly. And very often, large numbers of grapes would be left behind. If they had taken the time to pick all the grapes off the vine, the harvest would have been spoiled. And so it wasn't a case of getting everything in, it was a case of getting as much as you could in, and it meant working very fast, and in that condition, many grapes, bunches of grapes and uh, small amounts would be left over. And therefore, even the grape harvesters did not take everything. There was something left. But Obadiah says, when God judges Edom, there will be nothing left. The Edomites were notorious robbers and they would be robbed. 
but those who robbed them would have the time to come and to take everything. Edom would be conquered to such an extent that the conquerors could take their time, they could search out the entire country, they would find where the Edomites hid their treasures because they were notorious for hiding their goods in holes in the rocks. For when Edom is conquered, the conquerors will have time to look at every hole in the mountains. Every crack in the rocks will be investigated and the contents will be taken. Everything will go. Edom and the Edomites will be stripped bare. When the attack comes, when the judgment of God comes upon them, it will be complete, it will be thorough, and it will be overwhelming. The nation will be left in ruins And all her goods will be plundered, even as she had plundered Judah of her goods when Jerusalem fell to Babylon. Total destruction awaits Edom in the judgment of God. The second thing I want us to note this evening is Edom betrayed. Edom betrayed. Edom had grown confident in her alliances that she had built around her. She had entered into solemn and serious covenants with other nations which had been sealed by the sharing of a common meal. The word allies is related to the word covenant. The same word that's used in the Bible to speak of that sacred bond between God and his people. The people who will attack and destroy Edom are those who have entered into a sacred bond with her. It will be those she has trusted. It's those with whom she has felt unity. It is those with whom she has pledged friendship and assistance. It will not be a stranger, but the trusted friend who slips the knife between the ribs. Edom will be stabbed in the back by those she trusted. In the ancient Near East, the act of eating together created a deep bond between people. It said, even yet, if you flee to uh, a Bedouin's tent and someone there gives you something to eat, you must be allowed hospitality and rest and sanctuary for three days. Even though maybe uh, the uh, man or who are in charge of a tent of a tribe, has particularly longed to slit your throat. If he learns that someone has fed you, 
For three days. He must treat you as an honored guest. And if you leave. After having something to eat. He must give you three days. Before he starts after you. Such is the bond. That is made. When men eat together. And that bond. Was specially strong. In the ancient Near East. These were people. Who had feasted together. We tend not to see eating together in such the, in such uh, 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 the, uh, the same way, in such a way. If I may be personal here for a minute, I'll probably get it later on. But when I was courting, I used to first ask a girl, would you go out for a meal? That's how uh, little we consider uh, uh, the bonds to be formed by eating together. But in the ancient Middle East, it was an act of deep fellowship. These are the real trusted allies of Edom. They are the ones who will be the instruments of her destruction. They will betray Edom. And even it seems as they sat and ate the covenant meal together, they were planning to destroy her. Now it's not clear whether the trap was to bring the forces of Edomite, uh, the Edomite forces out into the field away from their mountains, uh, to tell them that they were needed to form part of an army, and once they got out then to attack them, or whether it was a case of the uh, people were welcomed in, they were given this uh, covenant meal, they were welcomed as uh, friends and allies, uh, given uh, shelter and warmth, and then the allies rose in the night and killed them. It's unclear really how this came about, because to the, the people of the ancient world, Edom was so small and so unimportant that the historians really haven't recorded this for us. But when it came, it came as a blow, as a shock. And it came at the hands of those whom Eden, Edom trusted. But Eden will also be betrayed by herself. She'll be betrayed by her self-confidence, her belief in her own ability to spot someone trying to pull a fast one on her. The people of Edom were renowned for being wise and they believed that they were clever enough that they could spot anybody who was trying to get a march on them. And the word to God is in this, you won't even spot it. All your cleverness will come to nothing. The trap will close and you will be destroyed. Her belief, it will never happen to me will betray her because it will happen to her Edom betrayed by her allies and ultimately betrayed by herself the third thing I want us to note this evening is Edom the lessons Edom the lessons well what are the lessons that we and the world as a whole need to learn from these verses in Obadiah. Well, we need to learn the reality of God's judgment. And the reality is he will not let 
his enemies and the enemies of his people carry on forever. Those today who crow over their vict- uh, about their victory over Christian morality and the Christian faith and the Christian church and the Christian believer need to learn the lessons of history. They need to learn the lesson of Judah and Edom. Because Israel still exists and Edom has disappeared from history. What do we call the people of Israel today? We call them the Jews. And where does that word come from? It comes from Judeans. Those people who seemed to be finally destroyed. Their land gone. Hauled off into exile into Babylon. Had anyone stood and been a betting man in Babylon They would have gone and they would have led money that if Israel and Edom, uh, uh, that in 2,500 years from now, Edom will still exist and Israel and Judah will be forgotten. The people of Israel and Judah are still here today. But the Edomites have gone. They disappeared from history. The last real main Edomite we know in history was Herod the Great. The men and women of our nation need to learn the lesson, the fact that the Jews are still here and the Edomites have disappeared. Just what this prophet Obadiah said would happen. God's judgment fell upon Eden and devastated that nation and began its disappearance from history. God will judge the nations and he will judge our nation and he will bring it to nothing. The forces that seem so strong today, so powerful that we cannot overcome them, will one day be swept away by Jehovah. The homosexual, abortion and divorce and Islamic lobbies that seem so powerful today, that seem to be uh, dictating uh, the uh, laws and the attitudes of our nation, that seem today to have the upper hand, who seem today to be well on their way to actually crushing the church forever. We'll find one day that God will act. He will judge them and he will completely destroy them. God will arise and vindicate himself and vindicate his people. And our modern world in its rejection of God will be devastated and brought to nothing. Our modern world and the people who oppose God and the people of God, they will be betrayed. They'll be betrayed by those things in which they trust. As the Edomites were betrayed by those they trusted and betrayed by their own self 
belief. The men and women of our day and our age will find that science and technology will not be able to prevent them on the, uh, uh, to, to, uh, to avail them on the day that Jehovah rises in judgment. It just won't happen. Science and technology will not be able to shield man from the effects of the wrath of God. And that day they will find that all their talk of tolerance will be exposed for what it is, hatred of God, hatred of his people, hatred of his ways. They will be betrayed by that in which they have trusted. They will be betrayed by their belief in their own intelligence and wisdom. They will not see the judgment of God coming until it falls upon them. It will come to them, as it were, out of the blue, unexpectedly, calling them to account. That day they will look to those who have led them astray, to the intellectual and to the media, to provide the answers. They will find themselves betrayed by these idols, for that is what they are. They are the idols of our age. For on that day they will have no power and they will have no answers to give. They will find them as much support as balsa wood. Which of us here would stand on a platform of balsa wood? You wouldn't do it. And that's what they will find on the day the shelters they think they have built, those towers of refuge into which they have fled, will be swept away. The lesson that the men and women of our age need to learn from Obadiah is that they need to turn to Jehovah now before he has risen in judgment. They need to come to repentance and faith to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the only safe shelter from the wrath of God the only one upon whom the wrath of God fell and he endured if any of you are here tonight are not Christians know this the judgment of God is coming and you need to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we preach here. That's why uh, Mr. Coulter preaches here. The cross of Christ. Because there's no other refuge. There's nowhere else to flee to. Where can you go. That can stand against God. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. You need him to be your shelter. From the coming wrath of God. You need to flee and put your trust in him. You need to repent of your sins. You need to turn away. You need to look to his death upon the cross as the atonement that you need to deal with your sins. And you need to look to his life as providing the righteousness you need. 
But what about those of us who call ourselves Christians here tonight? What lessons can we learn from Obadiah 5 verse 7? Well, we see this written in verse 5. Oh, what a disaster awaits you. Or better, uh, the English Standard Version rendering is better. Oh, how you have have been destroyed. And what is it? Notice where it comes. It comes as an interruption to these uh, illustrations that Obadiah is using of the thieves and the uh, grape harvesters. Why does it come there? It's because he sees what is going to happen and his heart breaks. There are those who say he is mocking the Edomites at this point, but he's not mocking the Edomites. A man who mocked the Edomites could not say in verse 12, you should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune. He wasn't a hypocrite. He did not look down upon the people of Edom in the day of their misfortune. His heart broke for them. He mourns for the people upon whom the judgment of God will fall. He sees them not just as the Edomites. He sees them as individual men and women and children who will suffer the pains and agonies that he has seen the people of Judah and Jerusalem suffer. He knows it must come. He knows the judgment of God will come. But his heart cries. It cries with love and care even for those who persecuted the people of God. How do we look at the people around us? Especially those who seem to be the leaders in opposition to God, the Richard Dawkins of this world, the Osama bin Ladens, the Abu Hamzas, the men who have hatred for God and God's people in their hearts. Do we hate them? Do we long for them to be cast into the miseries of hell? Do we long for them to meet some disaster? If we heard, for instance, that their wife or their child was stricken with cancer, would we delight? Or would we mourn? Obadiah teaches us that we should mourn over the men and women who are in opposition to God and we should pray for them. His heart breaks. But yet his prophecy reminds us that we should long for the judgment of God because the judgment of God brings justice into the world. This is something which We need to keep these two in tension. 
a rejection of evil and the wickedness of evil and the desire to see that evil destroyed but also a compassion for the men and women who have been led astray by the devil who have been led astray by this world we need to have a compassion for them Yes, Obadiah's prophecy is a cry that justice should be done, that Jehovah and his name and his people should be vindicated. But he also longs to see the men and women of Edom delivered in faith in God. You see, very often what happens is our concern for other people finds its root in sentimentality rather than in true love and we know that because we do not really wish to see the wickedness and the evil that they do judge we do not want trouble to come upon people But the reason we want to do this is because of some airy fairy notion that excludes the justice of God. We don't want God to deal with these people in justice. We don't want God to come and sweep away the wickedness of our world. We simply want God not to do anything in judgment on these people, not to bring any harm into their lives but we are content to let them continue on in their wickedness to continue on in their rejection of God and God's ways and God's truth it's because we do not love them we are just sentimental we need to keep these things in their true tension We need to have a longing that the men and women in society, uh, the society in which we live in, would be changed. They would be converted by the power of God. But we also need to have a desire to see God glorified and vindicated in the eyes of men. That's why the psalmist can say in words we will be singing in a few moments, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repairs you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. The psalmist says that because he is seeking justice, he is seeking for evil to be punished, he is seeking for righteousness to be vindicated and to be established, and the people of Babylon stand for those at that point who are wicked and evil and the destruction of their children stands for their bringing to an end of evil. If evil men have no children, then their evil will cease. He isn't taking a great delight in the idea of a Judean soldier coming and going through the streets of Babylon and picking up a child and banging it against the rocks until its brains come out. 
No, he is saying he wants to see God destroy evil and the forces of evil and to ensure that evil grows no longer, that it will not simply continue in another form. By destroying the children of Babylon, it's a, it's a, it's a symbol for the destroying of the forces of evil once and for all. You see, we need to long for the salvation of the men and women of this world. We need to long to hear the men and women who have opposed the gospel come to surrender their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think, we've been going through the book of Acts. What delight there must have been among the Judean Christians when they began and finally understood that Saul who persecuted them was nigh a truly born again believer in Christ. How they must have rejoiced at the grace of God. Do we pray for some of these men who come on the television who spite their hatred of God and the things of God. Do we pray for them that they may be converted that they may be examples of the graciousness of Jehovah. But at the same time, we should pray that the evil principles for which these people so often stand should be destroyed. That evil would be brought to nothing. We need to be able to uh, look at a situation and see the men and women in it separate from the evil principles they stand for. And long for the principles they stand for to be destroyed, but long for them to know the grace and the mercy of God. We need to long for the day when Christ shall come. We need to pray with John of old, even so, come Lord Jesus. Come to establish justice. Come to punish evil. Come to redeem his people. Come to subdue his enemies, that they may believe in him to the saving of their souls. Let us unite our hearts in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word from Obadiah. When we simply read these verses, they seem so far from our world so far from our everyday life, from the situations we face, from the people who are presented to us in the media. But yet, O oh Lord, we see this word is so relevant because it is your word. It speaks to us of a people who are the enemies of God. It speaks to us of your judgment upon them. But yet, Lord, it reminds us that we should have hearts for the men and women around us to long to see them converted. <clears throat> and so we pray for people like uh, Richard Dawkins, for people like uh, Andre, uh, 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 the, the Muslim man who comes on, Lord, and 
the TV and speaks in such bitter words. For Abu Hamza, with his no hand and his blind eye in an American prison, we pray for these men that they may be converted, that they may be brought from darkness to light, that they, O Lord, would find in Christ a living Saviour. But we pray that the atheism and the Islam that they stand for, we pray, O God, you would arise and sweep this away, that these forces which enslaved men would be destroyed, that there would be nothing left of them, we long for the day when Christ shall come again, when Christ shall judge this world, when he will vindicate his Father, when he will vindicate his people, when he will vindicate righteousness and justice. And Father, we long that Christ may come, for it is in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing part of